I really like the idea of God creating things and saying, they're going to love this. Because in reality, that's why God made the creation. And I've been assigned the task today to deal with another one of those really small and limited topics. I want to speak to you this morning about the image of God. What in the world is that about? I think it's providential that it came in the week of Valentine's Day. Did you have a Valentine's Day? Notice I didn't say, did you have a good Valentine's Day? Did you have a Valentine's Day? A couple of years ago, I took my wife to a marriage seminar for Valentine's Day, and the moderator said, now I want you to write down your wife's favorite flower. And I looked over and I said, it's Pillsbury, right? (laughs) Not a good way to start a marriage conference. (laughs) What is this image of God thing, and how is it reflected in the world? Well, it is reflected in the relationship between the husband and the wife. It's interesting as he ended up the video, he said, perfect. I wish he'd done a couple of things differently. I wish he'd spent more time on the elephant. I thought that was so cute with the big mustache and the Jimmy Durante nose. I wanted to see that again. I I went actually through the video a bunch of times, just paused it. And then the other thing is, instead of saying perfect, he should have said, I need to make another one of these. Because in reality, that's what happened at the creation. Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of creation, and from the very beginning, his image is mentioned. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, I like the message here. It says, God spoke. Let us make human beings in our image. Let them uh, make them reflecting our nature. And see, God's image is revealed from the very first chapter of the Bible. And so when we try to get our arms around what does this mean to reflect God's image, uh, how do we do that, can we do it today, Uh, it's really good to dig into those early chapters of the Bible and see uh, how that worked out. In uh, Hebrew, the the word is selim. It's it's a letter we don't have in English. It's the letter T-S. See that little Y thingy up there? Uh, That's in Hebrew, the word T-S. Say, like you're a hissing snake. Selim, and it reads backwards. S-L-M is backwards in Hebrew, and it means a representation or a likeness. It's the word used in Genesis 1. It's also the word used that God uh, used when he gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. Commandment 1, have no other gods before me. Commandment 2, don't make unto me any graven image. It has to do with a, with an icon, it has to do with an idol, it has to do with a statue that you would worship made by human hands. The Greek word is the word icon. That E-I-K-W-N up there, or W-V is in, in Greek, icon. And it means a, an object shaped to resemble the form or appearance of something, like the emperor's head on a coin. And if you ever get a chance to visit one of the mints in the United States, you ought to do that. They take these blanks, they're called, Uh, exactly the right size and shape of a coin, and they put it in this press, and it goes pow, and it presses out the head of a president. That's the image of the president on the coin. And so that's what the Greek word means. The the Hebrew word is very similar. And so when you come to Genesis 1, in the very beginning, God, in the very first chapter of the Scripture, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and so forth. Now, If anybody in here is an English teacher, we had one in the last service, and you read this verse of the Bible, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Some of you kids ask your parents what that means. You have no idea what fingernails on a chalkboard is, but it's it's really screechy. It's a miserable sound. And the reason it's miserable is because the pronouns do not agree in that verse. If you read it again with me, it says, don't read it with me, but it says, let us plural pronoun make man singular pronoun in our plural image according to our likeness and let them plural rule. 
So you've got a problem with the number here. If you're an English grammar guy, that's what we talk about in English and any kind of language grammar. The number doesn't agree. God should be singular. Man should be singular. How can us refer to God? And we understand later that this verse is referring what, to the doctrine which came to be known as the Trinity. As you study the Bible, we understand that God is three persons, and yet he's one. There's the Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, and there's one God. That's a very hard thing to get our arms around. It's called in Scripture an antinomy. Say antinomy. Anti is against namas is laws. It runs against the laws of logic to say that God is three, but God is one. How do we figure that out? I don't think in this world we'll ever totally understand it. But I think in heaven, as soon as we get to heaven, we'll say, oh, of course. Again, in heaven, everyone will have a flat forehead. Kind of like the elephant. Of course, God is three, but God is one. And so God is trying to show the universe what he is like. And so he says, let us make man in our image. There's going to be a plurality to the image of God. And so he does it. And the purpose of marriage, first and foremost, is to show the world what God's image is like, to reflect his image. Say, reflect God's image. Reflect God's image. That's the first reason God gives marriage. I do a little premarital counseling once in a while, and I sit down with a young couple. I'm going to do that Thursday night, first meeting. They're all there, lovey-dovey. They've just graduated from graduate school. They've got jobs, and they're getting married. And I'll say, why do you want to get married? And they'll say, because we love each other. I'll say, just learn what her favorite flower is. And love is a great thing, but it's not the reason to get married. We're to get married to reflect God's image. We're also to, to get married to rule in what is a spiritual warfare. God says, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. So there's reflecting, and there's ruling. And then later in the passage, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. There's that singular. Male and female, he created them. There's that plural again. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's why God made marriage. Three reasons. One, to reflect his image to the world. Two, to rule in the spiritual warfare, which is about to take place after Genesis 3. And lastly, to reproduce godly children who would help them in their plan. That's why marriage is given to us by God. It's not given to us by the state. It's not invented by a whole series of evolutionary decisions over time. God ordains marriage in Genesis chapter 1. That is the beginning. Very simple. Boom, boom, boom. I love the video clip. Because after everything God made, he said, hey, that's good. That's good. I like that. I, I wonder how God said that. That's good. I love that joy in the creative action of God. Now, the next chapter of the Bible is Genesis chapter 2. See, that's what they teach you in the theological seminary. After every chapter 1 in the Bible, there's a chapter 2, except for two books. You know what two books do not have a chapter 2? That's your assignment, children, for next week. You report back to me. One is Obadiah. The other is in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 2, God's image is reflected in marriage. And after day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, where it's very systematic and very, very simple, now we have in Genesis 2 a more complex idea of what it means to reflect God's image. In Genesis 1, you have an overview. In Genesis 2, you get the details. In Genesis 1, you have day 1 corresponds to day 4. On day 1, God made light. On day 4, he made the things that give light, the sun and the moon and the stars. On day 2 and day 3, they correspond to day 4 and day 5. And I'm, I'm sorry, day 5 and day 6. 
And then day seven, God rested. And then chapter two starts out. Actually, chapter two is the end of chapter one. In the first part of chapter two, it says in verse four, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. But it was not very good until he put the man and the woman together. And so to give us more information about that, Genesis 2 is the beginning amplified. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. And all the men said, amen. And again, I I take it that this is on purpose. I don't think this is an accident that all through the first chapter we had, this is good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. And then he looks at Adam in his little red underwear and he says, that is not good. You picture poor Adam going, oh, me? And so God says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word is the word etzer. Etzer is one who corresponds to him. And so, instead of doing that, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now here's the question. God says, hey, it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs an etzer. And instead of giving him an etzer, he gives him a job to do. What is the job? Name the animals. Why is he going to name the animals? I think for two reasons. Number one, it is his goal to show man what having dominion is about. When you get a new puppy or a new whatever you get, the first thing you do is give it a name. And when you name something, you're saying, look, we have responsibility for and authority over this creature. I think that was part of it. I think it's also interesting that the woman was not involved in this because he didn't need to be nagged about what names he gave the animals. (laughs) I don't like the name Aardvark. I like the name Aardvark. You know, some of those animals got some really weird names. I'm sure that happened on like a Thursday afternoon at 4 o'clock. You know, how about Hippopotamus? My guess is, as the animals came to the man and he was naming them, they probably came in pairs. You know, we had a hen and a rooster. We had a cow and a chicken. We had a goose and a gander. We had a male hippopotamus and a female. Is there a word for a female hippopotamus? Hippopotamus. I don't know. But I do know this, that at some point, just my opinion, that Adam might have looked around and said, you know, all these animals are in pairs, and I'm here alone. And I'm guessing at the time, Adam's thinking, you know, maybe, just hopefully, at the end of this line is my etzer, my helper suitable, my other half, the one who completes me. And yet that did not happen. It says uh, at, the, at the next verse, in verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So not only was God showing him how to have dominion, God was also showing him he was really alone. Think about that. How alone are you if you're the only person on the planet and your other half is nowhere to be seen yet? You are dead alone. God is building an incredible need for the female that he is about to provide for Adam. I think that's part of the deal. I think it's also sad that you can be married and still be alone. You can be in this room and feel alone. If you are, we love you. You're not alone. But we want you to understand part of God's image is so that the man and the woman are going to come together and show the world what it's like not to be alone. Even in the Godhead, God is not alone. 
God doesn't like to be alone either. So the next verse says, look, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. I think it's significant. The woman was not taken from his head to rule over him or from his feet that he should walk on her, but from his side because she's going to be his equal. And sex has been a side issue ever since. Thanks. Thank you for getting that. And then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know, if you have a Bible and you're looking at it, those lines are indented, they are in poetry, they are incredibly intense. In the Hebrew, he is screaming here. He is excited out of his tree to see this woman. God has brought to Adam the perfect woman. She didn't even have a mother. She is perfect for him in every way. And so what he says is not, this is now bone of my bones. He's saying, now, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, wow, man. Because she was taken out of man. And again, Hebrew, the word for man is ish, and the woman is isha. So she should be called Ishak as she came out of Ish. And you just got to love the intensity here. He is fired up out of his gourd about this perfect woman who will be his helper suitable. And if that's going to work and they're going to reflect God's image, here's what has to take place. For this reason, because God put the man and the woman together, these three things have have to happen. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined or cleaved to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I say naked because I grew up in the north, but people in the south say naked. You know, there's a difference between naked and naked. You know what the difference is? If you're naked, you have no clothes on. If you're naked, you have no clothes on and you're up to no good. (laughs) But this doesn't mean they just wander around and go, woo! This meant they were so comfortable with each other because they had nothing to hide. Sin had not happened. It doesn't happen until the next chapter. And so in this chapter, to reflect God's image, three things had to happen, and three things have to happen in our homes to reflect God's image. The first is leaving. The first principle to make a marriage work is there's got to be leaving. And I tell these kids that I do premarital counseling with, from now on, on the day of your wedding, you are not a son, you are not a daughter, you are first and foremost a husband or a wife. If you don't get that, your marriage isn't going to work. And I know that from personal experience. It took years till I figured out that when my wife was with her family, she acted weird. Of course, I never did that, but she did. When she was with her mom, she was torn about being a daughter. When she was with her brothers, she was a sister. But I wanted her to be my wife. You need to get that. Just understanding that will help. You know, it's good to send them home alone. You've got to leave. It's the principle of severance. Well, no, wait a minute. It says right there in those Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. Yes, it does. But the word honor is a financial term. It means be responsible financially for your father and mother. And I've wrestled with this in my own life, but I've had a lot of this stuff lately where, you know, I've got parents that feel like they have to provide everything for their kids, including college. 
You know, I sat down with a doctor two weeks ago, and he'd like to retire, but he can't because he has two that are going to be in college. I said, let me ask you a question. Who put you through med school? Well, nobody. I think you're doing your kids a disservice if you just give them everything. Can I get an amen? Now, I'm not saying don't help, but I'm saying we get it backwards. They're supposed to take care of us. I'm getting ready to be 62 in April. I'm taking Social Security. And I have four IRA accounts. One is named Zach, one is named Maddie, one is named Ben, and one is named Johnny. And if there's anything left when I'm dead, they can have it. But I did not spend my whole life to give everything away to my kids. That's not good for them. It's not good for you. And you are sometimes doing your child a great injustice by giving them everything. We used to have battles. We'd go buy shoes. With four sons, shoes were a big deal. And, you know, these were, I'm old enough now. I used to give them $10 for their shoes. They could either buy the $10 cheap New Balance shoes that they hated, or they could spend some of their own money and get the big-time Converse stuff. That's okay. They survive. They all have feet. But you've got to leave your children. The reason we raise our children is to prepare them to leave. You've got to get that right. Because if there's no leaving, there can be no cleaving. The word cleaving or joining, it's the word used in the, in the Egyptian world, in Arabic, of two pieces of papyrus that are joined together so you really only see the one piece of paper. That's the oneness. It's really more than a physical term. It's a spiritual and emotional filling up of each other's empty spaces. It's this. Get that right. Because, see, in most relationships, not all, but in most relationships I find that opposites tend to attract, don't they? In fact, I, I take that a step further. In many relationships, you find a perfectionist married to a slob. Guess which I am. And God has used my wife to teach me to be more particular. And, I, and God has used me in my, in my wife's life to teach her to be flexible. And we need this. Now, let me just get, a, get, a, get over here on the side a minute. If you're in that situation, you're going to struggle, but you're going to be fine. You might need counseling from time to time, but that's good. Figure out how to fill up one another's empty spaces. That's what being married is about. Let's suppose that you're a slob married to a slob. God bless you. You will never need counseling. If you make an appointment, you'll forget to go. My best friend is this way. He's a slob. She's a slob. He'll come home late for dinner. It's okay. She forgot to cook. You can't find anything in a drawer in their house. It's a disaster, and he's fine with that. But now, if you're a perfectionist and you're married to a perfectionist, then you get this. See, Then, then you're going to need on a regular basis to get a third party involved and help you to do this. Because God didn't make a mistake. He didn't send you the wrong spouse. He just sent you the right spouse to get you where you need to be together to reflect his image. Okay, so you can help God's program on the earth. And that's what joining together is about. Because if there's leaving and joining, then, then the becoming one happens. And again, not just a physical term. The words there in Hebrew, to become one, are the same words used in the Jewish prayer called the Shema, which they pray three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? One. And see, how do we know what God is like? We know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's one. We know what God is like because we see husband, wife, and God 
together in one relationship, and there's a, there's a oneness there. That's why we live on the earth for God, to reflect his glory and his image to the world. See, the problem is, <laughs> the problem is that we don't always understand what this looks like. How does this manifest itself in a marriage? Well, Paul picks this up in Ephesians 5. And at the last part of that marriage chapter, he says, Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is all about how to get through your marriage. The husband is to be the leader and the lover. And the wife is to be the responder. Now, they both are submitting. Ephesians 5.18 is the key verse in the passage. It says this, Submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. I must submit myself to my wife. In areas where I'm weak and she's strong, I need her to fill up that empty space in me. And she must submit to me. In areas where I'm uh, strong and she's weak, she is willing to abide under. That's what the word submit, what I'm going to get done. But here's how it fleshes itself out, love and respect. A husband needs to love his wife the way Jesus loved, sacrificially, unconditionally. If she gets that love, she responds back. And a wife is to love her husband with respect. If you've never read the little book, Love and Respect, I'd encourage you to do it. It's a great little exercise. It's also a video series. One of the best things my wife and I ever did. Because now I can come to her and say, you know, honey, I'm sorry, I did not love you correctly. Or she can come to me and say, honey, I'm sorry, I did not respect you. It means so much to a guy to have a wife who respects and admire him. When I, when I preach, I love for people to come, come up and say, I'm blessed, and say, hey, that was awesome, you really helped me. I, I get a lot out of that. But, you know, if Gwen comes up and says, man, that was great, you know, I can live off that for weeks. And so that's what it looks like in a marriage. I've given you all this as extra. I won't charge you. This is all marriage stuff. I'm going to go back to the image of God stuff. It's revealed in creation, it's reflected in marriage, but it's ruined by sin. Sin shows up in Genesis 3. Genesis 1, the beginning simplified. Genesis 2, the beginning amplified. Genesis 3, sin ruins the image of God in us. And Romans 1 is all about that. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation. And their foolish heart was dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So they started worshiping the, the, the created thing instead of the creator. The best way I can describe that is this. hope this works better than in the first service. Here's a mirror, 229 at Walgreens. In that mirror is an image. There's a fat old gray-haired guy. But when God sees me in the mirror, he sees me in Genesis 1 and 2 the way he saw Adam as perfect. The problem was, Genesis 3, what happened to my image? It's ruined. And now when God sees me in the mirror, he sees this shattered disaster. The great thing about our faith, and the reason we want to talk about the image of God, is this. God also sends Jesus. And God sees us through the image of Jesus. And that's the fourth point. We're redeemed by Jesus. Our image is redeemed by Jesus. 
Romans 8 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now don't get all upset about the word predestined. I'm going to tell you what it means in this verse. Oh no, he said predestined. What does that mean? Oh no. That's another one of those antinomies. And again, in heaven we'll all have the flat forehead because we're going to get it perfectly. Does God predestine everything? Uh Uh-huh. Do we have freedom of choice? Completely. How do you understand that I don't in this life? It's an antinomy. It's against the laws of logic to believe that God is allowing us to have free choice, and yet he's sovereign. But here in this verse, it's pretty easy. For those whom God foreknew. What that means is God knew beforehand who would choose Jesus. God knew beforehand that I would choose to want Jesus to represent me. So I don't come as a broken reflection. I come because of what Christ does in me. God knew I was going to make that decision. Did he force me to make that decision? No, I don't believe he did. But those whom he did know would make that decision, he also predestined. He had a plan for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And see, when God sees us, he doesn't see the broken mirror. He sees Jesus. Isn't that great? That's what Christianity is about. That is the message of the gospel. What do you do with all this? Well, if you're married, I think you need to answer this question. How does my spouse fill my empty spaces? And here's what I'd like you to do. Sometime today, before you go to sleep tonight, I want you to tell your spouse that. If you are married, I'd like you to say, you know, we learned today in the sermon about having empty spaces, and I am so thankful that God sent you to me Because this is how you complete me. This is how you fill up my empty spaces. I'm not good at running the budget, and you're great at running the budget. I'm so thankful that God sent you to me because you helped fill up that empty space in my life. I'm not good at making a plan, but you're great at making a plan. I'm so glad that you give me a list of things to do because it helps me. And by the way, this is for free. This is just extra. (laughs) Ladies, when it comes to relationships, you know the plan and we don't. You really do. You get relationships. We don't get relationships the way you do. You know, I I, I shared this with a group of ladies on Thursday, and and I always ask couples in trouble, rate your marriage on a scale of 1 to 10. How would you rate your marriage? You guys can do this if you're brave enough. I've never had a guy rate his marriage lower than a 7, and I've never had a girl rate her marriage above a 5. That's just who we are. We think everything's fine. I go to Gwen every six weeks. I say, is everything good? Because I don't know. But I know that she has the plan. And if she won't nag me with the plan, and she won't beat me over the head with the plan, if she will lovingly say, here's what I think we need to be doing, or if she'll make me a list. Guys are great at lists. We love a plan. We're doers. It's the first thing we ask a guy when we meet him is, what do you do? You know, when you ask a woman that, it's like, Women are identified by who they know. So, ladies, tell us the plan. Don't beat us up with it. We might go away and process for a while, then we'll come back and we'll probably do it. We just want to know what to do. Give us something to do. We're good at doing. How does your spouse fill your empty space? And then, as a couple, what can you do to do a better job of reflecting God's image? You know, are you involved in a small group? Maybe you ought to host a small group. Is there somebody in the neighborhood that you care about spiritually that you need to just start praying for them as a couple? 
Maybe you can invite them to something going on here at TBA. Maybe you can take them out to dinner. You know, they probably eat dinner every night. What can you do as a couple to reflect God's image to your neighborhood? That's what we're about. Let's say you're not married. Oh, gosh, are you lucky. (laughs) Paul says it is better not to marry. Paul says it's better if you remain as I. Now, it's better to marry than to burn. We looked at that this last summer. But if you're, if you're not married, you, you can spend all your time, instead of worrying about this person you're married to, you can ask this question, how can I better share what God is like with those around me? And you can be actively developing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. What is God like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those nine qualities are what God wants to produce in you to show the world what he is like. Are you with me? Let's pray. Our great God and our Father, we are thankful that we are created in your image. We're thankful that you have not given us a book with blank pages, but you've given us some very specific things about how that is reflected. For those of us who are married, I pray that we will be faithful in filling up one another's empty spaces and reflecting your image to our friends and our family and our neighbors and our loved ones. And for those of us that are single, I pray that we would find all that we need in our relationship with you, And that we would show the world that you're a God of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so forth. Father, may we as a church family be known for people that reflect your image until Jesus comes. Amen.